kind of a weird sentiment because every Sunday is Gospel Sunday, right, Grace Fellowship? Um, but for those of you that are new here, uh, what that means is we don't just talk about the gospel today and then forget it the next 51 weeks of the year. Um, we preach and talk about the gospel every Sunday. We sing about it. Uh, we profess sin, and, or we confess sin, and we profess the gospel uh, as our assurance of pardon. And this is because we don't believe that the gospel is the ABCs of Christianity as if it were like the beginning of it. But we believe that the gospel is the A to Z of Christianity. It's the totality of it uh, all the way through. And, and some of you might even be thinking with that sentiment, well, that's not really how I've ever heard of the gospel. Like, and doesn't even the Bible say uh, in like Hebrews 6 verse 1, let us leave the elementary doctrine of Christ and move on to maturity? And I would say, well, yes, the Hebrew writer does say that. Uh, but he doesn't mean that we leave or move on from Christ. Uh, if you continue reading what the Hebrew writer says is that we may not lay again a foundation of repentance from dead works and faith toward God. And some of you are still thinking, well, that's still a little fuzzy. What does that actually mean? Well, uh, John Calvin says the Hebrew author bids us to leave these rudiments, which is, that means the first principles taught not that the faithful are ever to forget them, but they are not to remain in them. And this idea appears more clear from what follows, the comparison of a foundation. For in building a house, we must never leave the foundation. And yet, to always be engaged in laying it would be ridiculous. For as the foundation is laid for the sake of what is built on it, he who is occupied in laying it and proceeds not to the superstruction, wearies himself with foolishness and useless labor. Now, if you're like me, John Calvin might be a little hard to understand the first time you read that statement. But the big idea that he points out that I want you to get from it is that the gospel, like a foundation, has a purpose. And that purpose is to build a house on top of it. Jared Wilson, who has written more than a dozen books on the gospel, gives us even more insight to the commentary of Hebrews. He says, the admonition is to grow up in the gospel beyond initial uh, repentance and individual salvation. That's the point Calvin was making. It's about following the signpost into the land of the destination. It's a call to maturity that is gospel-driven, not post-gospel. You with me? Maybe not. I know that still may be kind of heady and a lot as we begin, but here's the hope is that as we preach this message about the gospel, it will become a bit more clear. But I share all of that with you to say this. We as God's people never grow beyond the gospel. In fact, the gospel is what we will delight in for all eternity. I want you to hear that again. The gospel is what we, the saints, will delight in for all of eternity. Because in a broad sense, the gospel is the good news of God. The good news of God. For all eternity, we will continue to mine and be enamored by the glory of the gospel, never understanding it completely. 
Now, normally, when we think of or seek to define the gospel, we would do it as something like this, maybe saying the gospel is the life, death, and resurrection of Jesus. But what I would like to put forth this morning is that the gospel is the good news of God from all of Scripture centering on the person of Jesus, his life, death, and resurrection. You with me? I'm going to do that again so you get that because that's going to be our working definition. The gospel is the good news of God from all of Scripture centering on the life, death, and resurrection of Jesus. All right? I know what you're thinking. Aaron has alliterations, but I got hand motions. All right? The first thing I want to focus on in that definition is this phrase. Centering on the life, death, and resurrection of Jesus. Let me ask you a question. How important is the center? Well, let me ask you this. Depends on what you're talking about, Corey. Um, If you were to remove the center of our solar system, which is the sun, if you were to remove it, what would happen to the rest of the solar system? Anybody know or y'all forgot about something? That's right. Dr. Johansson said, (laughs) he's giving me hand motions back. It's gone, Corey. Thank you, doctor. That's exactly right. The solar system ceases to exist without the center that holds everything in orbit. You with me? So when we say that the gospel centers on Jesus, what we mean is that it's all about him. All about him. If you don't have the life, death, and resurrection of Jesus, then you don't have anything. And according to Paul in 1 Corinthians 15, 19, but in the words of Mr. T, I pity the fool whose gospel lacks a resurrected Christ. This is, this is real. It's pitiful. You have nothing. Apart from Christ, there is no good news. None. But because of Jesus, we have good news. We have the good news found in Ephesians 2 that even when we were dead in our trespasses, God being rich in mercy made us alive together with Christ and raised us up by grace and has now seated us in the heavenly places in him. We have the good news found in 2 Corinthians 1.20 that we have received all the promises of God through Christ. And we have the good news that the Old Testament saints talked about in Hebrews 11 longed to fully know. We have the founder and perfecter of their faith, Jesus Christ. And it's this idea, thinking back to the Old Testament saints, that brings us around to the first part of our definition, which is the gospel is the good news of God from all of Scripture. And I could say more about this, but I think it's it's a great time to turn to our text. So if you have your Bibles, you can open them to John 5, verse 30. And as you turn there, I'll give you a little bit of context about this book. Since we're just dropping in this morning, John tells us in John 20, 31, that he has written his gospel account so that you may believe that Jesus is the Christ, and that by believing, you may have life in his name. 
So when reading through John, as many of you know, everything is pointed in that direction. And up to this point in the book, John has provided uh, all, the very, all the different verifications, that, the proofs that Jesus is God. And now in our passage, Jesus, we see picking up a conversation with some Jewish Pharisees who are very suspect of him. Okay? So there's your context. Here we go in verse 30. Jesus says, I can do nothing on my own. As I hear, I judge. And my judgment is just. Because I seek not my own will, but the will of him who sent me. If I alone bear witness about myself, my testimony is not true. There is another who bears witness about me. And I know that the testimony that he bears about me is true. You sent to John, and he has borne witness to the truth. Not that the testimony that I receive is from man, but I say these things so that you may be saved. He was a burning and shining lamp, and you were willing to rejoice for a while in his light. But the testimony that I have is greater than that of John, for the works that, I, that the Father has given me to accomplish, the very works that I am doing bear witness about me that the Father has sent me. And the Father who has sent me has himself borne witness about me. His voice you have never heard, his form you have never seen, and you do not have his word abiding in you, for you do not believe the one whom he has sent. You search the scriptures. This is key. If you underline stuff, underline verse 39. You search the scriptures because that you think that in them you have eternal life. And it is they that bear witness about me. Yet you refuse to come to me that you may have life. I do not receive glory from people, but I know that you do not have the love of God within you. I have come in my Father's name, and you do not receive me. If another comes in his own name, you will receive him. How can you believe when you receive glory from one another and do not seek the glory that comes from the only God? Do not think that I will accuse you to the Father. There is one who accuses you, Moses, on whom you have set your hope. But if you believed Moses, you would believe me, for he wrote of me. But if you do not believe his writings, how will you believe my words? Let's pray. Father, we thank you for your word. And it is our prayer this morning that you would help us to believe the good news about you from all of Scripture centering on Jesus. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Now, picking up with our definition again before we move forward, we've already said, and I think you would agree, that the gospel centers on the life, death, and resurrection of Jesus. But I think that the first part of our definition is extremely important in order to avoid having a gospel that is too small. Okay? Now, let me explain. I want to be very clear that the good news of the life, death, and resurrection of Jesus is sufficient for salvation. It is. If you place your faith in Jesus' substitutionary work, you will be saved. But going back to Calvin's analogy, the life, death, and resurrection was meant to be the foundation upon which the house was built, meaning you don't ever leave it, but you continue building upon it. And this part is so important. Listen to this. It's the good news of God from all of Scripture, including the life, death, and resurrection of Jesus, that will empower and inform 
the building of the house. You with me? What I'm getting at here is we don't just build whatever kind of house we want to on the gospel foundation. It's not how this works. The gospel informs that the stru- the what structure, uh, what shape the structure will take. Uh, this will be a people who delight in the goodness of God and a people who live with an other's ethic. And if you're thinking that sounds familiar, it is familiar. It's exactly what Carlton preached last week. The gospel will create a people who love God and love people. Simply put, this is what the good news produces. Listen to uh, Doug Ponder, Professor Doug Ponder, on this matter. He says, when we don't understand the creator God in Genesis as the one who is seen in the face of Jesus Christ, who is the source of everything good, beautiful, and true, and at whose right hand are pleasures forevermore, then we will tragically present the creator God as merely sovereign and owner of all at the unintended neglect of his goodness. For example... Man's life is not only taken away as a punishment for sin, but also life is forfeited as a consequence of turning away from the only source of life and light and joy that there is. Is You picking this up? This is exactly what Jesus is saying in verse 39, which is kind of the anchor verse for our passage. He's saying, you are trying to understand God apart from me, but I am God. That's what Jesus is saying, I am God. You're searching the scriptures because you think you have life in them, but they're testifying about me. They're all about me. Jesus is offering these biblical scholars verification after verification after verification that what he is saying is true. Look look at the text, he's pointing to John the Baptist who testified about him. He's pointing to his own miraculous works that testify about him. Moses, who speaks about him, the law that they cherish, and God the Father himself testifies about Jesus. Jesus here is declaring that he is the God of the Old Testament. He is. He is the Christ that the Jews have been waiting for. He is their rock who provides living water. He is their king, their rescuer, and their redeemer. He's the eternal wise one. Jesus is saying, I am the gospel. And all the scriptures I have given you are about me. But why is this so confusing for them? Well, because they're reading the scriptures wrong. They've been raised to read the scriptures wrong. And this is why there's so much confusion when it comes to theology and doctrine today. Because everyone has their own way of interpreting the scriptures. But Jesus clearly states right here that he himself is the key to understanding the scriptures. It's through him that you understand. Trying to understand scripture, any scripture, apart from Jesus Christ, will at best leave you without a full understanding of the text. I love what I've heard Carlton say, Carlton Weathers, many times. He says, I'm not trying to be arrogant. Sure. No, he's not. (laughs) I'm not trying to be arrogant. He says, but I understand what Moses wrote better than Moses did. 
Why can he say that? Because he has Jesus who Moses was writing about. That's why. Looking back, he sees through all more clear. And this can be hard to understand. I know as you're sitting here, you're like, oh, there's so many questions, right? And, and, and it was hard to understand for Jesus' disciples as he continued to disciple him. Later on in the gospel, this gospel of John, in chapter 14, we're well along in the gospel, uh, we see his disciples struggling to understand this. Check out John 14, 8. You don't turn there, just listen to me. Philip, his disciple, says this. He says, Lord, Lord, we've heard a lot that you've said. Um, just show us the Father, and that'll be enough for us. Jesus said, have I been with you so long, and you still don't know me, Philip? That's how he responded to that. I've been with you so long, and you still don't know me? Whoever has seen me has seen the Father. How can you say, show us the Father? Do you not believe I am in the Father and the Father in me? This is good. So church, whenever you pick up your Bible, be ready to meet with Jesus and rejoice in the good news. No matter if you're in Hosea or Lamentations or Moses' writings that Jesus, is men that Jesus mentions, because in them we have the good news of a loving creator in Genesis. We have the good news of a powerful liberator in Exodus. We have the good news of God's holiness and justice in Leviticus. We have the good news of God's presence in Numbers, the good news of his fulfilling his promises to his people in Deuteronomy. And we could go throughout the, all the books, but we'll save that. And I know the objections because they've come up this week <laughs> as we've uh, uh, met about this passage. Corey, I hear what you're saying, but those things about God in the Old Testament are only good news if you're a believer. Like God's holiness is not a good thing if you're not submitting to his lordship. I hear you. But just because you are rejecting good news to your own detriment does not change the fact that it's good news. You with me? God's holiness will always be good news. God's holiness will always be good news because our God is good. And he's good when we rightly understand him through the face in which he's shown us through, which is Jesus Christ. And it's good whether you accept it or not. And the hope is that all men will accept this good news. So Jesus is the gospel. It's him that we see, it's through him that we see and know God. And church, it's this Jesus that we worship, isn't it? Like this is why we sing songs to him. This is why we rejoice in who, he ha in who he is, not because it's what we're supposed to do. I mean, if you're here because you're supposed to be here this morning, <laughs> I, I want you to know our God loves you. And our God hasn't put down his thumb and said, get under it. But our God has put his love on display for us. And the reason that we love him is because he first loved us. 
We see in the scriptures that in love he created us. In love he chose us before the foundations of the world. In love he humbled himself and became one of us. He gave himself up for us and reconciled us back to God. And here in the scriptures, from Genesis to Revelation, he is calling out for you to repent and come to him. That your sins may be forgiven. And you will live the life with him that he created you to live. This is the compassion of our God. The love of our God. And why would he do this? Why would he be so patient with our unbelief? Why in this passage? Would he go back and forth with the very people whom he created who don't believe in him? Because he loves us. Because he loves us. And you know who else he loves? He loves the Father. And the Father loves us. Because of his love, he was willing to take on our sin and our guilt and our evil, and he was willing to suffer the penalty of it. Isaiah says he was crushed, he was pierced for our transgression, he was crushed for our iniquities. Upon him was the punishment that brought us peace, and by his wounds, we, his people, are healed. Jesus is so wonderful. Jesus is so wonderful. This is why Barbara jumps up and down in the back. Because Jesus is so wonderful. But you know there's more good news? He didn't just die. I said he didn't just die. You're like, I know this part. (laughs) Yeah, it's kind of exciting. He rose. He rose from the dead. The grave could not hold him Yes, he was the spotless lamb who was slain, but he's also the line of Judah who will never be defeated. <laughs> That's our God who says, you're with me. You're with me. You see, in most love stories, the hero may have to give his life for the one he loves, but in this love story, the hero comes back to life because he wants to spend eternity with the one whom he loves. I hope that captures your heart this morning. I think that's why our God ordained such a beautiful story and wrote it out for us in the scriptures. This is the glorious good news that we celebrate and we will celebrate for all eternity. Now, while the big idea of our passage this morning is Jesus proving himself to be the long-anticipated Messiah whom all the scriptures are about, our passage also presents a problem. So what is the problem? Well, the problem is that these listeners that Jesus is standing in front of and talking to refuse to receive the gospel. They refuse. And some of them, it's like a silent refusal. They're not like actually rebutting him. Some of them are. But they are refusing to receive the gospel. And you got to wonder, like after we just contemplated the glorious gospel Maybe there are even some of you sitting here this morning. You just just have to think, like, why would anybody reject this good news? Why would anybody stiff arm the God of all creation who loves them with this extravagant love? 
Well, look in verse 30. At the beginning of this passage, Jesus makes a statement about himself. And in this statement, I believe he provides insight to part of the problem of his listeners. This is what he says in verse 30. He says, I can do nothing on my own. As I hear, I judge, and my judgment is just, because I seek not my own will, but the will of him who sent me. Okay? Jesus says, I seek not my own will, but the will of him who sent me. So what can we infer from Jesus' statement? What we can infer is that while he doesn't seek his own will, we do. We do. That's what he's stating to the people standing in front of him. Part of our problem that Jesus gets at in this text is that we all want what we want. Our will is supreme. Our greatest asset is our freedom, our autonomy, our do-what-we-want-to attitude. And we love being in the driver's seat. We love calling the shots. When we think about being subjected to someone else's rule, if we're honest, we get very uncomfortable and a little anxious. The idea of submission to someone else probably scares us. Like, what might this person ask of me? But in this passage, Jesus, I want you to get this, Jesus, the Son of God, says... I don't seek my own will, I seek the will of him who sent me. I seek the will of the Father. He's submitting to his Father in this passage. And church, this is what the gospel requires. You hear me? This is what the gospel requires, that you give up your own will. That you give up your own way. That no longer do you continue doing what you want to do, but rather... You live for another, in submission to another. And this leads us to another part of the problem found in verse 41 through 44. Check this out. Jesus says, I do not receive glory from people, but I know that you do not have the love of God within you. I've come in my Father's name, and you do not receive me. If another comes in his own name, you will receive him. How can you believe, he says, when you receive glory from one another and do not seek the glory that comes from the only God. So another part of the problem here is that rather than living for another, these people love glory for themselves. So not only do they do what they want to do, but they want to be the center of the universe. They want everything to revolve around them. They want people to like them. They want people to uh, see them as having it all together. They want people to admire them. They want people to think highly of them. And they want all this is because they believe the lie that tells them it's this that will make you whole. This is what will make you feel good. This is what will give your life significance and meaning that you crave. This is what will satisfy your desire for esteem and purpose. This will put your awesomeness on display so that others can marvel and you feel valuable. And let's be real, like what's, what's missing? What's missing from these people? Well, it's the same thing that's missing for anyone without Jesus. 
we don't feel important or special. We feel undervalued and looked over in almost every avenue of life. We're constantly searching for an identity that will fulfill our heart's desires. And so these are the things that drive our pursuit of getting glory from others. But Jesus says, listen to this, Jesus says, I don't receive glory from people. Why? People don't have real and lasting glory. They don't. Why? Because they're not glory givers. That's not the way they were created. They're glory reflectors. People are meant to reflect glory, not give glory. And so you're searching for something in someone who can't give you what you're looking for. Look to the son who gives glory. Now after Jesus first says in verse 41, I do not receive glory from people, he follows that up with a seemingly weird statement in verse 42. You ever read like weird statements, like weird verses, you're like, I don't know what happened there, but let's keep going, right? That's kind of what happens in verse 42. He says, I don't, uh, but I know you do not have the love of God within you. So when you're first reading the passage, you're, you kind of go, huh? Like, he just went from glory to love and then back to glory, but okay, we're back on glory, so let's just keep rolling. Uh, but this is important. Jesus' point here is that when you receive the love of God, I want you to get this, when you receive the love of God, when God's love is poured into your heart, it produces a craving, an insatiable desire for his glory alone. You with that? That's the connection between glory and love. When his love's been poured into your heart, it creates an insatiable desire for his glory alone. You stop looking this way, you look up. When you receive his love, which is what's being offered to you in the gospel, it changes your heart. And it radically reorients the way that you think about all of life. It radically reorients your primary focus being horizontal to your primary focus being vertical. You with me? So this is played out in Romans 5, 3. Paul writes this. He says, we rejoice in our sufferings knowing that the suffering produces endurance and endurance produces character. Character produces hope and hope does not put us to shame because why? God's love has been poured into our hearts through the Holy Spirit that's been given to us. You see that? It's because his love has been poured into our hearts that we are able to even rejoice in our sufferings. Even the bad stuff that happens to us, we're able to rejoice because we know that our God loves us and this is purposeful. He hasn't abandoned us. He hasn't put us or cast us off. It reorients, radically reorients all the way in which we see and understand life. <laughs> I don't want that to stick with you. That's what should be happening for the Christian. A radical reorientation of how you understand all of life. I loved, I talked to a pastor friend this morning who was about to preach. He was preaching on a, a text that he had preached on before a while back. And he said, you know, I'm really glad that I didn't just grab my notes and preach what I preached then. Because honestly, I see this text in a better light now than I did back then. I hope that's happening for us. <laughs> I hope we're constantly grasping and understanding things more fully as this radical reorientation continues to happen, as Aaron talked about in sanctification. Now, let's talk about this radical reorientation as his love is poured into our hearts. 
I know this will surprise you, but uh, as I was thinking about this radical reorientation as his love's poured in this week, a song came to my mind, right? Uh, A song that Percy Sledge made famous called When a Man Loves a Woman, all right? Try to stick with me here, all right? Most of us know that men do crazy things when they love a woman, right? All you men are like, nah, man, (laughs) liar, all right? We'll talk about being honest afterwards. You can see Rod, all right? Just accept it. We do crazy stuff when we love a woman. Seriously, though, there's no greater motivation than love. No greater motivation. No greater compelling force. So I want you to listen to these prophetic lyrics. That's a joke. Of what man would do when he loves a woman. When a man loves a woman, he can't keep his mind on nothing else. He'd trade the world for the good he'd found. He'd turn his back on his best friend. He'd spend his very last dime trying to hold on to what he needs. He'd give up all his comforts and sleep out in the rain if she said that's the way it ought to be. I don't know how you feel about that, but if Percy Sledge can sing that that's what a man would do when he loves a woman, how much more would the people of God do for the God who loves them? Right? The one who has created them, put breath in them, given them a mind to think thoughts, and even when they turn astray, redeems them back to himself at the cost of his own life. But here's the problem. That these people, and some of you today, refuse to receive the love of God. You refuse. And yes, for some of you, it's because you're not going to give up control. Like you're going to hold on to what you've got, whether it be secret sin or self-righteousness, until the day you die. You know, there's a crazy story I've heard, and forgive me if it's not true, but um, I think once I hear something three times, I just... validates that it's true. I'm just kidding, um, but here, here's, a, here's a story I've heard a lot of times. It says that you know a way you can trap a monkey is by putting something that it wants in a box that, and then put a hole in it that's just big enough for him to get his paw through. And once he sticks his paw through and grabs what he wants, he makes a fist and he can't get his hand out. And you would think that when you're coming to pick the monkey up, he would just let go of what it is and run away, but he actually won't let go. To his own detriment, he will not let go of what has him trapped. And I fear that some of you in this room this morning, you know you're holding on to something that's got you trapped. You know it's that your own detriment, and you just will not let it go and be free and receive what God has for you. But some of you today refuse to receive the love of God because you've counted the cost. And it's too high. Those lyrics that we talked about rang true to you. And you're like, I don't know about that. 
I heard a pastor tell a story about a woman who came up to him one day after he preached the gospel, and she said that she could not accept this gospel that Christ offers. So he asked her why, and this was her response. Hmm. If I was saved by my good works, then there would be a limit to what God could ask of me or put me through. I would be like a taxpayer with rights. I would have done my duty, and now I would deserve a certain quality of life. But if it is really true that I am a sinner saved by sheer grace, at God's infinite cost, then there is nothing that he cannot ask of me. And some of you know that. Some of you know that's what it means to receive grace. Is that now all of your life is offered up. But I'm here to tell you this morning that Jesus is worth that cost. He's worth it. He's better than you can imagine, greater than you can fathom, more glorious than you'd expect. And he is what you are searching for. He is who you are searching for. Church, our call this morning is for the good news of God from all of Scripture, centering on the life, death, and resurrection of Jesus to be proclaimed to one another every day and every night, to our children and to our co-workers. May we sing this good news. May we write of this good news. May we even dream about this good news. But most importantly, may we live according to this good news. And one of the keys in doing that will be to handle God's word rightly. The scriptures are not like a masterpiece in a museum. It's not what they're like. The scriptures are like a bay window that we look through to see the good news of God. That's what the scriptures are. Through the scriptures, we behold God's glory. Through the scriptures, we are moved and amazed. We're broken and we're happy at the goodness of God. So if you're constantly picking up your Bible like a textbook, please stop. Please God's word was given to you so that you could know Jesus. Be captured by him and grow in love for him. So read it that way and teach it that way. This is what will build you and others up in the body of Christ. Constant rejoicing and reminding each other of the good news of our God. And... This will be the best preparation for preaching Christ to a lost world. This is the best preparation. Too often, church, we make evangelism way too hard. Like We sometimes think that the lost need to read a chapter on sin before they can be saved. I've heard it said again and again and probably said it myself at one point. Well, I need to first get so-and-so lost before I can share the gospel with them because... They think they're okay. They think they're saved. But church, this is bad logic and not the example that God gives us in his word. Look in verse 45 as we close. Jesus says, Do not think that I will accuse you to the Father. Don't think I'm going to accuse you to the Father. There is one who accuses you, Moses, on whom you have set your hope. Here's what Jesus is saying. He's saying that the only hope that anyone has apart from him 
is that they have perfectly kept God's law given through Moses. And who is that? No one. According to Romans, none. But rather than give them a whole new understanding of the doctrine of sin, Jesus, listen to this, this is what Jesus does. Jesus simply reveals their own unbelief to them. That's what he does. He shows them that their own lives prove that they don't believe God's word. They're not trusting in his promises. That's what he points them to. And so all I say, uh, all I do to make that statement is just to say the world is offering you up all kinds of ways to reveal as the light of Christ is shining on that they don't believe in him. Just expose it. And how do you expose it? When you live a life marked by faith in the gospel. God's good news from all of Scripture, centering on the life, death, and resurrection of Jesus. When we live according to all that news, our lives will be the bright lights that make the unbelief of the world obvious, even to them. So, church, let us rejoice in the righteousness that has been given to us. Let us plead and beg and preach, come to Jesus and receive life. Come to Jesus and be made whole. Come to Jesus and want no more. Because it's only through Jesus that sin is forgiven. Only through Jesus that eternal life is granted. It's only through Jesus that people are given a new heart that rejoices in God. So may we as Grace Fellowship continue to be a church that rejoices in the gospel every day and every week until our King returns. Amen? Carlton Weathers is going to come now and help us respond to this wonderful truth.